Uh, please open your Bibles at Romans 8, verses 33 and 34. <clears throat> Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Amen. The chapter that we're looking at is brimful of wonderful comfort for the Christian and uh, especially reminding us of our security. If you're trusting in Jesus, you are eternally secure. So far the chapter has documented the Spirit's work in setting us free from the law of sin and death, of assuring us that God is our Heavenly Father and that we have a glorious future uh, when our bodies will be restored, that we have a God who has chosen us, has elected us in love and who works out all of our circumstances for good. Now, when a ship uh, is being prepared for service, especially a warship, uh, one of the things that it does that the, the, the builders do is they, they launch the ship and then it engages in sea trials. And the ship is tested uh, before it's given a, a full load and it's put on formal duty. It's tested against the elements uh, put through its paces. That is kind of what Paul is doing at the end of Romans chapter 8. Uh, he's given us this assurance of our security, that the God who elected you in love will see to it that you are glorified. And then he brings up against this promise all kinds of possible uh, loopholes, all kinds of possible reasons why we might doubt that we will ever get to heaven. And bang, bang, bang come the, the, uh, the trials, the questions that Paul throws out against this sure conviction. First question uh, is in regards to God's ability to supply us with all the things that we need. Can we trust God to see us through? And Paul's answer to this is based upon the conviction that he's built up throughout the chapter that God is for us. He is for us. He has chosen us. He marked us out as his. And then he has intervened in our experience in what we call effective calling to bring us to himself. He is for us. He's on our side. He's well disposed to us. He wills our good. And we saw it last time that that's the mark of somebody that we can trust. We trust people that we know are for us, who only wish our good, who are relentlessly well disposed towards us. And moreover, that is preeminently the love of a parent, and in this context, the love of a father. And that's precisely the point that Paul is making. As Christians, we know God as our Father. And so God is pointed to, in verse 31 and 32, as the great Father who is able 
because of his strength and willing because he is well disposed towards us to provide us with all that we could have need of. When I was a boy, my father was the ideal of manhood, and he still is. Uh, I would look up to him and think there was no uh, object that was too uh, heavy for him to lift. Uh, there was no task that uh, he could undertake, but he would succeed in it. There was no question I could ask him, but he would know the answer for it. Now, no earthly father is able to sustain the weight of these kind of uh, expectations, but our heavenly father is able to bear that load of expectation. Calvin has a, a beautiful sentence uh, in his commentary on this, on this uh, passage. And this is what he says. He says, The first and chief consolation of the godly in adversity is to be persuaded of the fatherly kindness of God. Be persuaded of the fatherly kindness of God. That's precisely what Paul wants us to see. We need to see that God is absolutely disposed to our good. And as proof of that, Paul points in verse 31 to the giving up of the Son. God who has done that will not withhold anything that you need. That was the first question, the first of these uh, questions that come in the, the, the sea trial uh, of this uh, conviction that God will see us through to the end. Can God supply me with all that I need? Yes, he can. The second gnawing doubt that we might fear, the second question that we come up against, is the question that we uh, might lack God's favor and supply. Uh, not, sorry, not that we might lack God's favor and supply, but that we might be condemned by <coughs> God's justice. God might be well disposed to our, towards us, but knowing that we are sinful, perhaps... <coughs> Perhaps he would be compelled in justice to cast us off. Well, the message to us from God's word today is that we need not fear because God's answer to our guilt uh, is justification through the finished work of Christ. And we're going to consider three points together. Uh, first of all, uh, fear of being accused is a reality. It's a reality. Uh, secondly, only God can give us peace that these accusations uh, will be thrown out. And then thirdly, God can be just. He can uphold his justice in throwing out the accusations because of Christ's work. So first of all, fear of being accused is a reality. It's a reality of our lives. Uh, there's been a lot of talk with all of the, the terrorist strikes of the need for more armed police. You know, we, we seem to be having more situations when we need to call in our special forces. And they tell us that it is increasingly difficult to attract men and women to the armed uh, police services because of a fear of being accused uh, of using the, the firearm uh, inappropriately, you know, uh, in the heat of the moment, 
perhaps. Uh, I, I would shoot when there was another course of action open to me, and I'd be taken to court. Uh, in, in the Malay, uh, perhaps I would injure an innocent bystander for a host of reasons. People are aware that we live in a society where people are very quick uh, to accuse and to take people before a court of law. What about the kind of accusation that Paul has in mind? Uh, He's speaking of the fear that we will be accused before the judgment seat of Christ. He's speaking about the fear that something will be dredged up from our lives that will make us guilty before God. Well, we're told by many people that uh, this doesn't connect with modern men and women, uh, that we need to present the gospel not in legal terms, but in relational terms. Um, People perhaps have been indoctrinated by the idea that guilt of anything, of any kind, is always a wrong feeling. You know, it's inappropriate to feel guilt. That's true. Many people give the impression that all guilt is false guilt. But uh, if the humanists uh, think that they have done away with the idea in the population at large that there is some, that there is a reality of guilt and that there is a, a, a final uh, assize, a final court before which we must all stand. If they think they have done away with that idea, then they are mistaken. In all sorts of ways... Uh, the, the notion of a resurrection and a judgment is still prevalent in popular thinking. For example, uh, I was interested to, to look at uh, the, the content of uh, the performances at the, the One Love concert in Manchester. It benefits a ch- uh, concert given in the wake of the, the Manchester bombing. Now, Predictably, there was a lot of silly sentimental stuff there, but also there was an interesting uh, amount of evidence in the lyrics of some of the songs that were sung at the concert that uh, people who are in popular media have a latent belief in resurrection and judgment. Uh, For example, Coldplay sang their hit Viva La Vida, Uh, with the line, for some reason I can't explain, I know St. Peter won't call my name. Liam Gallagher uh, sang the Oasis song Glass Wall with the line, I believe believe the resurrection's on and you were wrong. And there were a number of other examples like that. Popular references to a resurrection and the fear of being on the wrong side on the day of judgment. So buried under layers of secular confidence, there is this lingering fear that there will be a game-changing accusation brought to bear in the afterlife. Let me say that that fear is quite right. It is very appropriate if you are not a Christian. There's no point in trying to airbrush out a feeling of guilt if you are actually guilty. (laughs) The reason that you're feeling guilty may be just precisely that. You are guilty before God. 
And what you need to do, if you're not a Christian, is you need to have that, re that removed properly by coming to God in repentance and faith and asking Him to deal with it through His gift of Jesus Christ. But what about the Christian? That's a reality as well in the life of a Christian, the, the sense of being uh, accused. I'm sure there are times uh, in Paul's life when uh, he had flashbacks uh, of the, the cries of the, the people that he was hounding in his pre-Christian days. Remember Paul went around <coughs> homes dragging people uh, from their homes to bring them before uh, the religious police. Paul asks the question, who will bring any charge against God's chosen ones, literally God's elect? Well, uh, there are sources of accusation. There are three classic uh, places that we can uh, expect accusation to come from. Uh, there's first of all, the world. The world will accuse the Christian. Uh, the world, the non-believing world, uh, is constantly accusing Christians. Uh, we're accused of being hypocrites. We're accused of being in religion for the money. Uh, we're accused of being intolerant. We're accused of being self-righteous. Uh, we can even, uh, as Donald McLeod pointed out in an article in uh, this month's uh, record, we can be accused of being anti-art and destroying art. All kinds of uh, ways the world uh, accuses the Christian. Uh, it's interesting, for example, that although we have to tread on eggshells when we connect Islam with terrorism, uh, the, the wor in the world's eyes, the, the, the terrorist problem is one of fundamentalism. And fundamentalists of all brands are lumped together. Uh, Christian fundamentalists are just uh, a suspect as Islamic ones. The problem is believing something too much. The world will accuse the Christian. Then there's the devil. The devil, of course, is the great accuser of the brethren. Uh, that's one of his names. In Zechariah chapter 3, we have this picture of, the, the, of Satan accusing Joshua, the high priest. Zechariah is given a vision, and the, the high priest's clothes have, have been morphed, if you like, uh, Traditionally, the high priest would wear clothes which were dazzlingly bright, uh, colourful, and bedecked with semi-precious stones and gold plates. And now, Zechariah sees Joshua, the high priest, and his clothes are filthy, uh, putridly dirty. And Satan is beside him, wagging the finger, accusing uh, the high priest. And that, friends, is what Satan loves to do. Satan loves to, to dredge things up from your background, from your history, and accuse you. I remember those filthy conversations you were involved in at school. I know how often you've blown up uh, in a rage at the family. How can you sit in church knowing that. 
and so on and so on and so on. Satan accusing us, bringing things from our past and accusing us. You're a hypocrite, so on. Then there's our conscience, as we were saying to the children, that, that inner voice which tells us, uh, now that we're doing right, now that we're doing wrong. Now the conscience is an, uh, an infallible guide. The conscience has to be calibrated by the Word of God. And uh, the Word of God through the Scripture and, and through God's testimony around us and within us. And it's possible for us to harden our conscience by uh, repeated disobedience to what we know to be right. And, and the conscience then becomes an unreliable arbiter. But nevertheless, if conscience uh, is working, uh, then uh, we will be uh, accused by our conscience if we are at all uh, sensitive. So, there are these three sources of accusation, the, the world, the devil, and our conscience. And secondly, only God is able to give us peace from the accusations that might come at us. How is God able to throw out these accusations? Paul says it's because he is the justifier. God it is who justifies. Now, we ought, all of us who've been uh, working through Romans, ought to be pretty proficient by now at giving an explanation for what justification means. Uh, justification has these two aspects. Uh, it means atonement. It means the removal of our sin. It means uh, negatively just taking away uh, all of the wrong in our lives. But it also means uh, imputing the righteousness of Christ. It means positively uh, making us what we are not by nature, making us right before God, giving us a righteousness that Christ has lived out. So God both wipes the record of our offences and then he, he credits, he writes in the record of Jesus' perfections. He does two things in justification. And justification means that we can stand on the last day and not fear any accusation. We don't need to think that we're going to be like Bill Cosby. Bill Cosby... Uh, he was caught a hook the other day because it was a mistrial. The jury couldn't come to a verdict. But those who are campaigning against him say that uh, they'll be back for him. Not so with the Christian. Justification means that we are right with God and we need fear nothing on that last day. Paul says it's God who justifies. God is the justifier. You don't look people to justify you. God is the justifier. However, a lot of people do try to look to people to quiet the voice of conscience. Abraham Lincoln, for, for example, assassinated on the night of April 14, 1865. Uh, when they came and examined the contents of Lincoln's clothing, uh, there were five things found in his pockets. Uh, there was a handkerchief uh, embroidered A. Lincoln. There was a boy's pocket knife. Uh, a glasses case repaired with string. A purse containing 
uh, a five-pound bill, which was actually, ironically, Confederate uh, money. And also, and interestingly, along with these things, there were some newspaper cuttings. Why did Lincoln carry around these newspaper cuttings? Because they were all cuttings recording some of the good things that he had done in his life. And in particular, there was a cutting uh, with the report of a speech made by uh, British politician John Bright, uh, which said that he, Lincoln, was a great man. Now, of course, we do give Lincoln that, that's, that's standing. He, he was one of the great men of history. At the time, he had many critics because uh, he had been accused of bringing uh, the, the states of America into a, a bloody and prolonged civil war. And for his justification, Lincoln turned to these records of things that he had done well and people who had thought well of him. Friends, that will never, never do for us. People will often uh, seek comfort from what people say of them uh, or will look at things that they've done in the past, good deeds, uh, achievements, and so on. But Paul says it's God who justifies. It's not you who will justify yourself. It's not the, the opinion of others. It's not a collection of press cuttings saying that you had done good things. It's God who justifies. Now, of course, that could be terrifying because God has absolute standards of, ju of justice. He's the holy God. He knows all about us. He sees into our thoughts. But it is God who justifies. It's before God whom we are accountable. And therefore, if God acquits us, we can be 100% sure that the acquittal will stand. So God is the only one uh, who can remove our fear by throwing out the accusations. And then finally, God is just in doing that. He doesn't just get rid of the accusations by sweeping them under the carpet. He is just because of what Christ has done. Who is it who condemns, Paul asks. And then immediately he points to the finished, the complete work of Christ. And what he says is actually like a condensed version of the Apostles' Creed. So there's a lot of theology uh, in these few words that come uh, after this question. Uh, who is he that condemns? First of all, Jesus died. The first response is that Jesus died for sins. Paul uh, gives us in short and fashion, Jesus who died. But in Scripture, and in Paul's own letter, it is always a, a substitutionary death. He died in our place. He died for us. He died for our sins, in the place of sinners. That was why Jesus went into the darkness. That is why Jesus came under the curse. That is why Jesus uh, was forsaken on the cross of Calvary. He was paying a debt for us. He died for us. Uh, but not only did Jesus die, he was raised to life. Jesus' death was accepted by the Father as full payment for our debt. Jesus' resurrection is always linked with the cross because it's the evidence that God accepted what Jesus had done. He, the, the, the prophets had foretold that, he, that the Messiah would die. Jesus told his disciples that he would go and 
go to the cross as a sacrifice. John the Baptist had pointed to Jesus, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But if Jesus had not been raised from the dead, then we might have wondered, was it all worthwhile? Was it a, a, a sacrifice that God the Father accepted? And because of the resurrection, uh, raised uh, by the Father and the power of the Holy Spirit, we know that the Father was pleased with what the Son had done. And he's now victorious. Uh, Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God. He's at the right hand of God. Uh, this is the place of victory. Hebrews 1.3, after he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. It's a picture of a king whose battle is won and who is now seated on the throne. Uh, his victory complete. The work is finished. He doesn't need to be on his feet. He can sit down in the tabernacle and in the temple. There was no seat for the high priest. And that was hugely significant because his work was never done. He was endlessly repeating sacrifice. But Jesus, who comes as our high priest, has sat down. His work is finished. There's nothing to be made up, nothing to be added to it. He has sat down at the right hand of the majesty in high. And he is interceding for us. Calvin says that Paul adds this so that we might not be terrified by the majesty of Christ's absolute authority at the right hand of God. His place there is not to condemn us, but to support us by his prayers. He is interceding for us. Now, there are two aspects to that, to this uh, intercession, the heavenly intercession of Christ. First, by his very presence at the right hand of the Father, the right hand of the majesty on high, he vouchsafes our security. He is a perpetual reminder that our sin has been dealt with. Uh, we're going to be uh, closing just shortly uh, with the words of before the throne of God on high, uh, with the words, when Satan tempts me to despair and points me to the sin within, upwards I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. His very presence at the right hand of the majesty on high is an intercession. But also Jesus is actively praying for us on earth. In Luke 22, 32, Jesus tells Peter that Satan is asked to sift him like wheat. But Jesus assures Peter, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And you, when once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Jesus, uh, throne at the right hand of God the Father, is not a throne of judgment for us as believers, but a throne of grace where we're invited to find mercy and grace to help with all our needs. John Bunyan, uh, the great John Bunyan, in his autobiography, Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners, uh, he shares how uh, he was helped by this truth uh, during times of, of 
feeling insecure, uh, feeling keenly the accusations of Satan. One day as I was passing in the field, and that too with some dashes in my conscience, fearing yet let, lest yet all was not right, suddenly this sentence fell upon my soul, Thy righteousness is in heaven. And I saw with the eyes of my soul Jesus Christ at God's right hand. There I say, as my righteousness, so that wherever I was or whatever I was a doing, God could not save me. He lacks my righteousness, for that was just before him. I also saw, moreover, that it was not my good frame of heart. In other words, uh, it wasn't uh, how good he, he was feeling about himself that made my righteousness better, nor yet my bad frame, you know, feeling down and depressed, that made my righteousness worse. For my righteousness was Jesus Christ himself, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Bunyan saw uh, in this insight that God's answer to guilt lies not with us, but with God himself and with Christ, who is now at the right hand of God, having finished his work. And so if God has chosen you and justified you through that effective work of the crucified, now risen, now seated Son of God, then no charge can be brought effectively against you. God, the sovereign judge of all, has said, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You are not condemned. Amen. May God bless to us his holy and precious Sing uh, the, the hymn that we mentioned before the throne of God above. We have a strong and gracious plea. A great high priest whose name is love. Whoever lives and pleads for me, my name is graven on his hands, my name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart before the throne of God above.
now may grace, mercy, peace from God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit rest upon you now and forevermore.